pray that you fill us with your spirit now. Open your word to us, even as we open your hearts to you, and pray that you give us strength. Give this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So this weekend is the 30th anniversary of Jurassic Park. Um, I remember that because uh, we watched it. It came out and we watched it at the rehearsal dinner uh, for, our, for our wedding. So to us, Jurassic Park just feels like anniversaries. Because <laughs> the next one would always come out on our anniversary. So we were like, hee <laughs> um, Unfortunately, it's the 60th anniversary of a time when a governor and the state police stood between two university students in the front door of their school. Today, 60 years ago, George Wallace stood there with state cops. In his, in his inaugural address earlier that year, he had famously, infamously shouted, uh, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. And so when two African-American students came to pay for registration for their classes, Governor Wallace was standing there between them and the door with state police officers barring their way. Now, President Kennedy, knowing that he was going to disobey a direct presidential order, took a nod from what Dwight Eisenhower had done six years earlier in Arkansas, and he federalized the Alabama State Guard. He sent the army in to stand against the governor and the state police of Alabama. People will sometimes say today that the world is worse than it ever was, and I'm like, it's different bad, and yet the same bad, because until we change the people, I don't mean the policies, until we change the people, we'll always justify why we can hate those guys. 1965, Martin Luther King Jr. called George Wallace the most dangerous racist in America. 1972, he was shot in an assassination attempt and paralyzed for the rest of his life. Had a new appreciation for the concept of pain and suffering. By 1979, he had become a born-again Christian and publicly, repeatedly apologized for all the pain and suffering that he had caused, specifically to African-Americans. He said, I know I added to your pain and all I can do is ask for your forgiveness. In fact, in fact, he ended up bringing record numbers of African-Americans into the state cabinet, into, into government positions. His daughter said that his, his change was sincere. In his last term of office, 1982, he won 90% of the black vote. It's not my place to judge whether his conversion was sincere. I mean, I'll be honest. He was always a political opportunist. He always said whatever would get him elected. And yet, why would I doubt it? And you might go, well, because look at him. Right. Why would I doubt it? Why would I be tempted to say, yeah, I'm not sure that that sort of person can be born again. Isn't the whole point of being born again that the worst of sinners need it? I find George Wallace reprehensible. Found Jeffrey Dahmer reprehensible. John Newton was reprehensible. 
by his own admission, Augustine was reprehensible. I think Saul Paulus was reprehensible. Pretty sure I was reprehensible. The commonality between all of us is that at one point or another, we at least expressed that we moved from death to life, that we made a decision to follow Christ and we asked him to wash us clean. I want to see George Wallace and Jeffrey Dahmer and Augustine and Saul Paulus and John Newton in heaven with me. Don't you? Be careful. (laughs) Because every once in a while I'll run into somebody who's like, I don't know that I want to see that guy in heaven. I don't know that I want to see her in heaven. She's so foul. He is so reprehensible. I am just so glad that our father judges based on criteria differently than we do. We look at somebody and say, you are so sinful. I really don't want you saved. Whereas God looks at us and says, you are so sinful. You're exactly why I died to save you. And the fact that somebody might need it more than I, nobody needed it more than I. Do me a favor and turn to 1 Peter. And we're going to keep going as we, as we march through 1 Peter again in kind of this legacy sermon series. Since we, this is the first sermon series I did when I, when I got here 20 years ago. But last week we only got through the first two verses, so I want to get through it a smidgy bit more this week if we can. Um, so turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. And, and we keep hearing, in the, even in that outside of the envelope of this letter that he wrote, we kept hearing the same idea over and over that we're just passing through this place. This, this is... This is some place that's just a speed bump on our way to our true home. And we're ambassadors. We're citizens of heaven, bringing heaven with us into our interactions wherever we go as we sojourn in this life. I mean, enjoy your life here, and that's, that's great. It, 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 live it abundantly, but it's not your home. I say that because there's, there's several, but there's, in, this, in this instance, two competing mentalities. One that sees this place as our home that we need to invest here, and, and, and be comfortable here and find our joy predominantly in this place. So we need to make the priorities that bring us those joys our priorities. We need to make sure that we, we do the things that, that make us comfortable in this place. Contrast that with the mentality that says, well, wait a minute, I am literally just passing through here. This is like my hotel room. I want a decent hotel room, but I'm not trying to make it my home. You know, I want it to be clean. I, I'm trying to pick it nicely, but... This is my mission field, not my home. I want to make sure that I'm investing in the more permanent things of where my home truly is. I want to find my joys predominantly in that home. And therefore, I want to make the priorities that bring those joys my priorities. I want to make a better investment. I'm not saying it's wrong to be happy here. Just why would we work toward making that our priority? You don't have to make it worse. You don't have to be beating yourself. I'm, I'm with Pablo Picasso. He's, he's like, just living here is suffering enough. I don't have to add to the suffering as a suffering artist. But that's kind of the point. If, if this place itself is suffering enough, if we have seriously injured this place with our messed upness, with our sin, then why should I be so terribly prioritizing feeling so terribly comfortable here? I shouldn't. I'm a square peg in a round hole. I'm just passing through here. 
And I've got so much more to look forward to. This place should feel more like a speed bump and less like a home. Okay, I've given you plenty of time. Hopefully you're at First Peter. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is his introduction to his letter. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope, which is really a mouthful if you stop to think about it. Because if you think of it from a, a, a Jewish perspective or the state church perspective or even some of the high church theologies that we still run into today, that's an, that, that's an odd way of looking at it. Because most people would say, well, I'm, I'm part of the family of God because I was born a Jew. Or I'm a Christian because I was born in Christian Sweden. Or I'm a Christian because my parents made a decision for me to be a Christian because they're Christians. Doesn't that make me a Christian? I was born in a Christian family. Why would I need to be born with a new birth? Why would I need to be born again? Being born the first time is really all that I'd need in order to be able to go down to heaven. There's no decision for me to make here. A king decided centuries ago that we're all Christians in this country. My parents are good people and I did good things in a good church. That makes me a Christian, right? It absolutely does, in precisely the same way that standing in my garage makes me a Buick. <laughs> to that degree, yes, that works. But if you remember what Jesus told Nicodemus back in the famous John 3, that ends with you know John 3.16. We love John 3.16. But in John 3, you can stay in 1 Peter. But Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. What if I'm a really good person? No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. But I grew up in a really solid family. I went to church a lot. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. What if I don't like that idea? There are nice people. They're good people trying to do good things. It makes me uncomfortable to think that we won't all see heaven I really don't like this idea. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. If we want to trust that Jesus actually knew what he was talking about, then that suggests that we should make sure that we know what Jesus is talking about. It's important for us to understand this. If that's the only way for us to get into heaven, if Peter's right that there's only one name by which we may be saved, what does it mean to be born again? Even Nicodemus was confused. He's like, so I, how does that work? I don't even think my mom would be amenable to me trying to be born again. I don't, Jesus says, oh no, to all who received Jesus, everybody who's accepted that he's from God, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not out of natural descent, not from what country or family or whatever you were born into, nor of human decision or husband's will, like, hey, let's, let's try to have kids now. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But born by, of God, by God's will, a different kind of birth that leads to a different kind of life. I've said so many times before, Christianity isn't just a shiny polish on your old life. It's not just coming along and saying, if, if you just become a Christian, things will run smoother, things will make more sense, you'll be able to get things, your marriage will be solider. There's a gazillion ways that Christians will sometimes try to present Christianity to people who aren't Christians. But that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is saying, oh, no, no, you die. And then are resurrected. 
You're dead in your sins, and then Christ is giving you new life. It's a complete do-over, a whole new operating system. This metaphor of rebirth is not a metaphor. It was never intended to be a metaphor. It's not metaphoric at all. It's genuine. You are given new birth. You're born again into a new life. It's not metaphorical. It is spiritual rather than physical, but it's not metaphorical. I'm not just a better, happier Kevin from before I went to, and made a decision to become a Christian. I'm a whole new Kevin. And anybody who tells you anything less is selling something. That's some sort of warm, fuzzy self-help seminar. But the whole point of this, uh, the whole point of baptism, isn't the whole point of baptism to say you died and have risen again with Christ? Lord, I want you to kill my, my dead parts. And I want to leave those at the bottom of the baptistry, at the bottom of the Jordan. And I want to come up. I want to break the surface alive in you. Please resurrect only the parts that genuinely are what honor you. That's what I want. I want new life. Paul said that when you're dead in your sins, because that's where you started out, making wrong choices, leaving dead parts inside of you. When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive again with Christ. Me and you and George Wallace and Jeffrey Dahmer and anybody else who's ever sinned but has then been washed clean. It's the exact opposite of what the world tells us, the exact opposite of what seems natural to us. You start off dead and you have to come to life. You don't even realize how dead you are until you come to that new life. Paul says, God made, you, God made you alive again with Christ. To the Romans, he said, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Which is why Paul could write my favorite verse that Paul wrote from Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. And so this life I live in, in this body, and I do live now. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Because Dying to myself and getting new life isn't, isn't death to fun. It isn't a death to richness. It's new birth into the, into the richness, into the fullness of life that we were created to live in. This is what I was created to be. So when I hold on to the priorities of this place, the attitudes of this place, the focus of this place, the sins of this place, I'm holding on to the dead bits and I'm preferring them. It's like taking your shirt to the cleaners and saying, please do me a favor and don't use any detergent or water. I've kind of grown attached to the stains. It's like, well, then what, what do you think the cleaner's there for? What, why did you even bring the shirt? What are you doing? God washed you clean. Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross and his resurrection from the tomb bought you new life. Live it that way. So Peter, because we're in 1 Peter, I don't know if I mentioned it. 1 Peter, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, a hope that goes beyond the limitations of this place. He showed us that death isn't the end of it all. We have this hope that survives past death. And that's kind of an important part because Christianity doesn't make any sense without that part. Again, we just get to be a self-help place. I can't help but quote Paul again, because 
Because I think Peter and Paul are both trying to preach the same message. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, if he hasn't been raised from the tomb, if he hasn't been raised to life, if he hasn't been, then our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. It's pointless. In fact, he goes on to say, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins because nothing's really changed. And those who have fallen asleep, those who have actually physically died, Christians and non-Christians alike, they're lost. People go, but I don't like that idea. It makes me uncomfortable. Well, Peter and Paul and Jesus all seem to think it's true. So why would you even believe this if you don't believe this? Why did you take the shirts to the cleaners? Why did you even crack this puppy open? Believe it or don't believe it. In fact, Paul says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied more than all men. Again, very contrary to the way we think. Nowadays we say, you know, it's great, be a Christian, just don't let it you know, bleed over into your everyday life. Please don't talk about it when you stand up or sit down or when you walk in the way of other people. Please don't talk about it at the checkout counter. Please don't talk about it at the gym. Please don't talk about it at work. Whatever you do, don't let it affect your... Ch- you don't actually believe this stuff, do you? You know, maybe we don't want that guy in public office. He actually believes the Bible. Maybe we don't want her teaching our children. You know, she actually says she quotes the Bible, like she believes this stuff. You can be a Christian because we have freedom of religion, but if you actually live in any way like this dribbles out into anything other than the hour you may spend in a church building, stop it! I'm sorry, am I wrong? Or isn't that the way the world literally tells us on a daily basis that we should live our Christianity out. Whereas Peter and Paul and Jesus all say, if that's your Christianity, then you should be pitied. It is a sick joke if that's what you believe. If that's the way you're living, you should pity people. You know why? Because those people are crazy and they're wasting their life. Do you actually do you actually you actually think there's a Jewish carpenter that was really God? Is that is that what you actually think? That somehow he died in an electric chair, and because he died in the electric chair, somehow it helps you two thousand years later. You kind of believe that. You're a crazy person to believe that. Aren't you? Unless it's true. And if that's true, why would you shove that into one hour and make sure you keep it out of the other 167 hours of your week? It's insanity. Or it's life-changing. Anything in between is illogical. And I like me my logic. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade, that's kept in heaven for you, waiting there for you, not because you've earned it, but because Christ earned it on your behalf. And he's, he's washed you clean. So positionally, you can have this, but he's also bought your adoption into the family of God with that blood which means that it is your inheritance by right. Being children of God's family, which is part of what Jesus had promised back in 
in John's Gospel. That if we, if we believe in Christ, he's given us the right to be called children of God's family. So in heaven is this inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. It's yours. And I love the Greek because it says literally guarded in heaven for you. It's guarded. Nobody's getting to that. It can't perish or spoil or fade. Jesus talks about that it, it, no moth or rust is going to destroy. No thieves can break in and steal it. Nothing can make it go bad. Nothing can ruin it. Nothing can make its luster or its color fade. Nothing can take it from you. All you have to do is get there. All you have to do is get there. And even that, God helps you with. Even that. Eternal life is kept in heaven for you who through faith, which itself is a gift from God, right? Are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. God is protecting you on a daily basis. He is holding on to you. He is giving you faith. He is protecting you, and he is protecting your inheritance. The level to which you would have to be screwy to give all that up is amazing. I don't even have to get, I can be a raging Arminian and say it would have to be incredibly difficult for you to fling all that to God and say I don't want it anymore. And a good Calvinist would say, and you can't even do that. It's waiting there for you, and it's yours because you've been born again. Not just because you joined the club, not just because you went, huh, that makes some sense. So for anybody who sits there and goes, oh, so you have to do this in order to be saved, and that's unfair, and it's elitist of God. It's like, no, it's physics. If you're a child of God, this is your inheritance. If you're not a child of God, it isn't. So when exactly are you saved? Because it says your salvation is ready to be revealed to you. I've used the analogy before of, of a check. Let's pretend, that, let's pretend that you have to pay your mortgage or your rent or whatever, and you have no money. And so you come to me because you're foolish thinking I have money. But you come to me, and I write you a check to cover the, the rent or the mortgage. Whew, you're saved, right? Technically, yes. Problem's been solved, right? Except all you really have is a piece of paper with my name on it. So you have to take it to the bank. And the bank says, oh, yes, we know him, and he has this money. Here, this is your cash. And you go, okay, so now I'm saved. Technically, no, because the money is still sitting in your hands and not in the hands of the bank or your landlord or whoever you're going to pay that to. So then you hand it to them, at which point they go, oh, okay, check something on a little box, and now you're covered. Now you're saved, right? So were you saved? Are you being saved as you go to the bank? Or will you be saved when it is given to the landlord? At any given moment, that is completely appropriate to say, I was saved, I am being saved, I will be saved. And not even be all theological about it, though I could be if you want me to. But logically, it makes sense that you go, it was applied to your account over there, you're living it out here, it will be ultimately applied when you stand before the Lord and Jesus says, this is one of mine. You were saved at the cross. You're saved, being saved, every day that you live like that. And your salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time when you were standing in the presence of God and he says, my child, this is all for you. 
It's moving from death to real life. So in this, Peter says, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials because you're square pegs in round holes. And round holes don't like square pegs. They chafe, right? This world is not designed the way it's supposed to be designed for you. We screwed up the design. Poured chocolate syrup into the gas tank thinking that that tastes better. We've screwed it up. We've gummed up the works. And in case you're tempted to think that this is him being trite because he doesn't understand my pain, bear in mind, Peter's writing at a time when you have emperors like Domitian and Nero blaming the burning of Rome on the Christians, crucifying them and lighting their, their bodies on fire to light the Appian Way in Rome. This isn't trite when he says, you may have had to suffer some grief and some trials at various points. You go, ah, like what? Well, Peter's crucified upside down. Paul's sawed in half. Some trials and some griefs, some sufferings. They understand the concept. We do not have a modern corner of the market on suffering and pain. But again, I come back to, which is why Christianity is not just a self-help religion. It's not just here to make things a little bit better. It's not a religion for amateurs. You need to go pro real early on. It's a completely new life. It's a new relationship with the living God who died to save you and then cracked death open. It's going to get a little dicey sometimes. Anyway, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, but even these have come for a purpose so that your faith of greater worth than gold. I love that. Your, your faith is worth so much more than gold. Gold doesn't last. You know, I'm pretty sure it does. No. You could technically just melt it all down, can you? Well, yeah, but I mean, it's still gold. You know, yeah, eventually the world will pass away. Gold, Even gold has a half-life, I suppose. You know, it's pretty stable. You, yeah, but your faith is eternal. Your faith is going to last so much longer than fragile little things like gold. Your faith is greater worth than gold that perishes even though refined by fire may be proved genuine, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Actually, if you've heard of the English Standard Version, ESV actually translates this one a smidgy bit better. I like the way they translate it. So that These have come so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a subtle difference, but I like that it says it's not just that your faith is proved to be a genuine one and the faith can thus glorify God. It's the, the tested nature of your faith. The testing of your faith is itself what honors God. Not just that you have a solid faith, but you go, but it's been tested. That is what honors God. Life can be hard and it will be hard, but it's your willingness to live as if how you live matters. That your commitment to living as if what you truly believe is that this world is not your home and that if you're going through pain, it's not God's fault. He's still sovereign, but if you're going through pain, God isn't the one that you shake your fist at and say, why would you let this happen? God's the one you look at and you go, help me to get through this world that we have screwed up so badly. 
That's what shows that your faith is more than just non-committal dabbling. That's what shows that you're not just believing that this faith is going to make your life a little bit better while you're here. It's that you believe that you have been born again into a new family, into a new place, into a new life. And you truly believe that your Father loves you and is going to be there for you. That's what honors God. The testing itself. Though you haven't seen him, you love him, Peter says in verse 8. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are thus filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, no matter what the circumstances are all around you, because you know that you're just passing through this place. Your home is a deeper, richer, truer place than this place could ever be. You're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy because you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You're receiving it right now. And you will receive it, and you have received it. And you are receiving it. And you're keeping all this in mind. You remember the inheritance that's waiting for you imperishably. You may not always be comfortable here in this place. But you can be joyful in this place, even when you're going through suffering. Because there's a difference between being comfortable and having joy. The difference between happiness and joyfulness. Comfort says... I'm relaxed and everything around me feels good. Happiness says, I have a warm, fuzzy part in my heart because I'm enjoying this. Joy says, I have a deep, abiding appreciation that I'm right with the Lord, that I can get through this. I have a satisfaction that goes beyond just how comfortably I feel. Two university students may not be happy that a governor and state police are standing between them and their school. They may not find that day very comfortable. But to know that your president sent the army to walk up there with you, there's a certain level of satisfaction that comes with that. Your God says... You may have all sorts of trials. There may be all sorts of things standing between you and where you need to be. But I'm walking up there with you. You have an army with you. I love you. And I'm never withdrawing that. I love how the writer of Hebrews, the greatest sermon ever written, says, let, our fix, let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Cross is not a happy thing, but if Jesus could endure crucifixion and keep his eyes fixed on the joy of eternality in the, in the presence of God, I, I want to I do what Jesus did. I want to do that. I want to have that mindset. That's what I want to do. Ain't none of us going through crucifixion. Most we're experiencing in this life is a speed bump. You know, <laughs> speed bump killed me. I got eaten by a shark. You go, yes. And then you went to heaven. Oh, I see your point. You are receiving the goal of your faith, Peter says in verse 9. The salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace, the unmerited favor that was to come to you, searched intently and with greatest care for 
centuries, people were saying, when? I mean, read Daniel, read Ezekiel, read Joel. Uh, read the disciples going, when? When is the when is the kingdom starting? Now? Is it, is it today, please? When? The prophets, the disciples, searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. They're like, we know more or less what's coming. Paul tells us in Romans that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Those of you, unlike me, who have given birth will understand this verse so much better than me. But all creation goes, really, really? When? It's all been leading up to this. The prophets searched intently and with greatest care, but it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. Think about that for a second. The greatest, most godly men in history waiting for the ultimate moment of God's ultimate grace toward humanity, and they realized that all this was for you. Where you're sitting right now, all creation groaning, yearning for the new birth in the kingdom of God that's now available to you. They weren't serving themselves but you when they spoke the things that have been now told them have now been told you by those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. This whole book from Moses to David to the prophets to the gospels has been leading up to you. Don't get cocky. It's been about God. Not about you. But it's been leading up to this. This moment leading up to you. It's finding its fruition in your faith whose tested genuineness glorifies the God who created all of us. It's all been leading up to this. Even the angels long to look into these things, Peter says. Even the angels go, I don't quite get how this works. I would really like to understand it, but I don't. I get that people can sin and be redeemed. I've heard that. We can't. But I know you guys can. Man, I'd love to understand that. These things that God is doing for you and in your lives and through your lives. So when we say, yeah, to Christianity, we miss all of that. We miss all of that. It's never just a, yeah. You go, no. All of creation has been leading up like, like waiting childbirth. For your new birth. Not just the kingdom, but you are the kingdom. And you are born again into this kingdom, into this family. And it's all been leading up to this. This place is just a speed bump on the road to eternity. It's just a blip. But it matters, not because it's the only life that there is, not because this is our home. It matters because this is our mission field and this is where others can be called where we were called and where others can be called to move from death to life, to become children of the living God. This place matters. How you live matters. Every day how you live matters. The words you use matter. How you treat the person next to you matters. It matters. Every second matters. Even though it's a tiny sliver of a tiny sliver of an infinitesimally small blip in eternity. 
Every second of it matters. It matters to God and it should matter to us. On the cross, Jesus paid for what we could never afford to pay for, not just forgiveness of sins, but adoption into God's family, into a new inheritance, into a new purpose within this life. If you believe that, if you genuinely believe that you have been born again, if you genuinely believe that you have moved from death to life, if you genuinely believe that all of this was leading up to this moment, if you genuinely believe that every moment matters because it is a time for you to be an ambassador to a kingdom of dead people from a kingdom of a living God, shouldn't that affect how you live today, the rest of today? When this world doesn't do what you were hoping it was going to do, when, when you're thrown a curveball, the world is curveballs. That's all it is. It's just a bunch of curveballs. And if you ever get one straight over the plate, it's because the world screwed that one up and it was trying to do a curveball. How do you respond? How do you respond? You've been born again. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you that this life is not all there is. I thank you, Lord. And I pray, Lord, help us to never be all that we can be in our own. Help us to remember that we are not just the sum total of our environment and the sum total of our genetics. But we are filled with your Holy Spirit and given new life. Help us to love you well every day. In Jesus' name.